Podcast. We're on episode 20 of the Primeval Podcast. We're starting Genesis chapter 10 today. So we're on the home stretch of finishing this particular series, which will end at chapter 11. We're going to be returning to the work of Dr. Michael Heiser in this episode. I'll be attempting to condense his Divine Council worldview into an abbreviated presentation. If you wanted a more protracted presentation, you just go to YouTube and do a search for Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, Divine Counsel. You can find plenty of content directly from him on that subject there. I will place a link to a very good documentary put out by Logos Bible Software over his work, The Unseen Realm, uh, so that's worth a watch. But one of our goals of this series is to show you how the content in Genesis 1 through 11, is the foundation for understanding the entire Bible. Genesis 10 and 11 in particular, we hope to demonstrate, starts a thread that runs all the way through to the New Testament, through the New Testament. Now, for starters, Genesis 10 and 11 are somewhat out of order. Genesis 10 is titled, in most Bibles, the Table of Nations, but it could perhaps be more appropriately titled The Division of the Nations or The Disinheritance of the Nations. This division of the nations prepares us for the details of the event which are going to be given in Genesis 11. So Genesis 10 is giving us the outcome of Genesis 11. We have evidence of that in Genesis 10 verse 5. It says, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, on the other hand, we're told later in Genesis Genesis 11, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Since those two things cannot be congruent, obviously. What is being described in Genesis 10 is the consequence or the outcome of what we read about in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, it says in verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. And so that is what is being described with more detail in Genesis chapter 10. The information we're given in Genesis 10 and 11 isn't provided in some kind of neat timeline of history, just like the rest of primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11. It isn't history at all in the way that you and I would think of history. It's giving us a very abbreviated synopsis of an unknowably broad or large slice of history. Again, kind of like mythology functions to do. In Genesis 10 are listed a total of 70 nations that are derived from the descendants of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Historically, 
These are the figureheads, not only of nations, but also races of human beings. For instance, the Jewish people are considered Semitic or Shemites because they descended from Noah's son named Shem. And so as we continue with developing a supernatural worldview of the Bible, what is of particular interest to us is going to be what is going on behind the scenes. The details of which are only revealed much later in the pages of Scripture. Genesis 10 and 11 are setting up the story of Abraham, that starts in chapter 12, and the patriarchs, which will comprise the remaining 39 chapters of Genesis. So that setup is the story we want to tell today. And it starts with some clues dropped later on in Scripture. For instance, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Here's what it says, in, starting in verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. The picture we are given here is that God not only divided the nations, but he disinherited the nations and gave rulership of them over to appointed divine beings, the sons of God. In dividing the nations, he fixed their borders according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the phrase sons of God, I would refer you back to a previous episode where we covered that topic in more detail. That's primeval Genesis 6, 1 through 8, the sons of God and the men of renown. That's episode 18. Putting this together with Genesis 10, that makes 70 nations placed under the rulership of 70 divine beings. When we piece more verses of scripture together, apparently these beings began to rebel against God and to receive worship from the nations over which they're put in charge. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars all the host of heaven, that refers to divine beings, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord your God has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are to this day. So that passage of scripture is just a repetition of the things that we've already read. And so those beings who began to receive worship were subsequently placed under the judgment of God for being derelict in their duty of ruling just, justly. That's the story told in Psalm 82. Here's what Psalm 82 says. 
God has taken a place, excuse me, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, little g gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. So this scenario, this paradigm that we're painting from Genesis chapters 10 and 11 would make the third incursion of rebellious created divine beings in the story of Genesis. The first one being the serpent in the Garden of Eden. The second being the sons of God in Genesis 6, which we learn about in uh, 2 Peter chapters 2, 4, Jude chapter 1, verse 6. Those beings were imprisoned in a place called Tartarus. Those beings may be described as being unleashed once again on humanity in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And the scenario presented in Genesis 10 and 11 would describe the third and final reported rebellion in Scripture. We know these beings who are put in charge of the nations are actively opposing God throughout the story of Scripture due to verses like Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, this is an angel presenting himself to Daniel in this passage. And here's what he continues to say in verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the archangels, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings, or the rulers of Persia. Now, this paradigm explains why in polytheistic cultures, you aren't bound to worship the God of your ancestors. You are to worship the God of the ground you currently occupy, since that particular God is in charge of that territory. The God of that territory is the one who will determine whether your stay there is friendly or hostile. Now, again, this is according to pagan religions and ancient Near Eastern thought. The God of your native homeland doesn't have any jurisdiction on foreign soil. So this was common thinking and practice in polytheistic cultures, and it's reflected in many of the stories of the Bible. So understanding this supernatural worldview not only helps us to make sense of the rest of the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And so let's develop that thought. As God disinherits the nations because they're in rebellion against him, he doesn't totally disassociate from them. After the Tower of Babel story, God immediately pivots and begins a reclamation project of all the nations through the call of Abraham and the formation of the nation of Israel. 
in the call of Abraham, it says in Genesis 12, 3, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's vision from the very beginning isn't just for the nation of Israel, it's for the nations. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 32.9, it refers to Israel metaphorically as Jacob, his, God's, allotted heritage. While he's disinheriting all of the other nations, he is laying claim on the nation of Israel as his own unique people. And so starting with Abraham, the story immediately after the Tower of Babel, he calls out Israel to be his treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth that's set in juxtaposition to the disinherited nations and their gods. Soon after the exodus from Egypt, God instructs Moses to appoint 70 elders to assist him in ruling the fledgling nation of Israel. Now, of course, you know that number isn't coincidental. God is sending a signal to the rebellious leaders of the nations. I'm training your replacements. And while the project of the nation of Israel ultimately proved inadequate, the plan itself of training replacements for the rebellious leaders of the nations had not. Fast forward with me. We have in the New Testament the story of Jesus sending out, you guessed it, 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10. Now they've been sent out by Jesus to go and minister. Upon the return from their mission, they report great success in their endeavors. Here's what it says in Luke 10 verse 17. The 70 returned, now some of your Bibles will say 72, half of the ancient manuscripts have 70 disciples, half of them have 72, so it's, it, you could go either way. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. In other words, Jesus is the new Moses, indicating to the powers that be, I'm here and I brought my posse with me and we're taking over. And this time, the plan is going to work. God was working through Jesus in a similar manner that God was working through Moses to form a new nation to reclaim that which he had disinherited. As the plan with Moses faltered, God rebooted the plan through his unique son, Jesus Christ, who would, like Moses, organize a new nation under his kingship. It says in First uh, Peter chapter 2, it describes the people organized under the headship of Jesus Christ like this, starting in verse 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is, while you have been formed as a new nation of people, you have not been given your own land yet. One of the problems with giving the Jewish people their own land was that they isolated themselves. God doesn't repeat that part of the plan on purpose. He wants his new nation to be permanent sojourners so that they will, what, disperse, just like he commanded at the Tower of Babel, disperse, says in Matthew 28, verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go, disperse. So as a Christian, you are a foreigner living on foreign soil no matter where you live on this earth. And we are to be eagerly awaiting our homeland, which will be established at some point in the future at the return of Jesus Christ, who says in Matthew 28 verse 8, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It was prophesied about Jesus and the reclamation of the nations. In Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Speaking prophetically of Jesus Christ. Concerning the new nation, or we could say the new ruling class, the New Testament church, Established by Jesus at his first coming, we're told in Hebrews 13, verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And then in Philippians 2.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Christian believers, we have to learn to exist in this sort of in-between place. The the already-not-yet aspect of the kingdom of God. While we already belong to the new family of God, the new nation, and have been given citizenship in his coming kingdom, we yet have to live as exiles, as misfits, here in this present evil age that continues to be ruled by gods in rebellion against the one true uncreated God. While we're called to take over and we've been given authority to do so, we have the power to do so, it is clear they remain in control of the physical territories of the earth. So here's a sampling of New Testament passages on that topic. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus has went, on, went into the wilderness to be test, tested or tempted by Satan. And it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
And I would argue that is not a false promise. Satan was able to offer those as a temptation because he was in possession of those kingdoms. Then again, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the little g, God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's referred to there by Paul as the what? God of this world. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And yet in spite of all of that, the takeover by the New Testament church has already begun and is progressing as an unstoppable force. The primary battleground where the fight is being waged for now is in the minds and hearts of believers or unbelievers for that matter that have been blinded by the God of this world. So let's look now at the initial incursion, and this is a good incursion this time, of the gospel of the kingdom into the minds and hearts of the first converts of the disinherited nations from Genesis chapter 10, and we find that in the book of Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now obviously that's referring to a specific set of nations, nations of the known world, which would have been represented in Genesis chapter 10, continuing on in verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, you get that? That's a reversal of the confusion of languages in Genesis chapter 11. Let's keep reading in verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Parthians and Medes. Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Skipping down to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and they were added to that day about 3,000 souls. If you were to compare this great event from Acts 2 with the countries that were disinherited in Genesis 10, it would be an exact match. In other words, while God may have disinherited those nations, he never intended to abandon them. And in this event, he's empowering his newly Holy Spirit-baptized ambassadors to return to those nations from which they came and to begin the reclamation project by preaching the message of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God to everyone who would listen. The next verse in Acts chapter 2, tells us that these disciples immediately go into strict training to grow in the effectiveness and skill at partnering with God in this project. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so for the remainder of Acts, which will eventually focus on the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, it tells the story of the mission of the church and the spiritual warfare that ensues to make disciples in all of these nations. Now I'm going to turn and I'm going to cite from Michael Heiser here from his book, The Unseen Realm. He is going to point out how this paradigm is precisely what is driving the mission of the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys described in Acts. Here's what he points out from Paul's writings. I'm quoting Heiser here. The New Testament and early church tradition suggests that Paul was released from his bondage and went further west before taking into custody by the Romans for a second and final time. In fact, Paul told people that he fully expected to go to Spain after the Roman imprisonment mentioned in Acts. In his letter to the Romans, Paul told them twice that he intended to go to Spain. We're going to cite now from Romans 15, starting in verse 22. For this reason also I was hindered many times from coming to you, and now no longer having a place in these regions, but having a desire for many years to come to you whenever I traveled, travel to Spain. For I hope while I am passing through to see you and to be sent on my way by you whenever, whenever I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am traveling to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do so and were obligated to them. For if the Gentiles shared in their spiritual things, they also ought to serve them in material things. Continuing on with Heiser. Why is Spain of any concern to us? And why did Paul want so badly to go there? In Paul's day, Spain was where Tarshish was. Tarshish was a Phoenician colony in what was later Spain. The point is profound. Paul was convinced that his life's mission as an apostle to the Gentiles, the disinherited nations, would only be finished when he got 
to Spain. As incredible as it sounds, Paul was conscious that his mission for Jesus actually involved spreading the gospel to the western to the westernmost part of the known world, Tarshish, so that the disinheritance at Babel would be reversed. So fellow believers in Jesus Christ, as we close this episode, let's take ownership of our identity and our mission together in a new and fresh way. We are on a mission to wage spiritual and information war on the God of this world to win the minds and hearts of all people of planet Earth over to the message of Jesus Christ. As we do that, as subversive foreigners in hostile territories, we are eagerly waiting for the return of our great God and King, Jesus Christ. To him and him alone do we pledge allegiance. Knowing that we will inherit the nations with him to the extent we have used our time and resources to advance his cause and mission here and now. And so we'll end with this reading from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, the title deed of planet Earth, and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We are in training to replace those rebellious rulers, and God is going to put them to shame with weak human beings who have spent their life training in godliness to take their place in this amazing plan. So as always, as we close, blessings to you wherever you are as we engage together in our marching orders to reclaim the nations. I hope to catch you on the next episode. For more great content, please visit my Substack Substack site at thefoundrypress.org. That'll be linked in the description below as well. Hope to catch you next time, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.